Welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Zitnik. I'm sitting here in the heart of Europe, surrounded by a rich diversity of language and cultures, working with global companies. So why do we keep thinking we can just pop some comms out in English for all employees, maybe send it off to a few language translation agencies? What about corporate comms, global marketing campaigns? I'm sure we've all seen some culturally excellent advertising campaigns and some rural doozies. Luckily, I have Ray Walsh and Cecilia Maldonado with me today to delve into this topic. Ray is a specialist in content localization and author of Localizing Employee Communications, a handbook, which was released last year and is available on Amazon. He's currently in Prague and has previously worked in Brussels for companies such as UPS and DXC. Cecilia is the Director of Strategic Accounts at Latam Ways, a company based in Argentina that specializes in a wide range of language-related services. She is also the President of Women in Localization. With over 20 years of experience in the industry, Cecilia is focused on helping people shape and deliver impactful cross-border communications. And while Ray focuses on employee communications, I'm also really looking forward to joining it with Cecilia. Cecilia, your external communications perspective. Welcome, Ray and Cecilia. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ray. And thanks, Cecilia. Ray, I really enjoyed your book, Localizing Employee Communications. Can you share a little bit more about yourself and what prompted you to write it? Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope it was uh, helpful. Uh, I entered corporate communications in the early 2000s, and the people that I learned the profession from were of a mindset where communications is something that we create at headquarters, and we share it with the various business units. I moved to Europe in 2007, uh, so in that capacity, I was more often in the regional offices. And from there, I see a real disconnect. You know, people just are ignoring global content. Uh, it, it's as if that global content is flagging itself as being from a foreign alien office in that, in that it's in English. It's not a language issue. Uh, it's that it just doesn't connect with them and they're extremely busy. And this is true not just of companies based in the U.S., where I'm from, but also uh, from, you know, I've worked with companies in Germany and Switzerland that also use English as a corporate language. And what's surprising to me is that uh, if, if companies measured their internal communications, and as IEBC members know, many still do not, they'll see a huge drop-off in consumption of campaigns and content outside of the headquarters. And I think as communicators, we need to wake up to this fact. So the purpose of the book was to show my communication professional colleagues what's happening outside of the home office, and then to show them some easy things and maybe some not so easy things they can do to make, you know, improve things for the better. And I really look forward to delving into all of this in our conversation today. So Cecilia, what is your perspective? How do you see localizing employee communications and more broadly communications and Maybe you can share a little bit about your journey to start with and a bit more about women in localization. Okay, so I am a translator. So for me, translating content is important to reach the audience that you want to reach. For me, there's, it's no-brainer. But uh, And as a translator, we usually work on marketing materials, websites, uh, corporate communications, but not internal communications. So most of the work that we do as translators is for 
the external world, right? So I became a translator many years ago, 22 to be exact. You know, I, I changed the direction of my career since I started understanding that I liked other things around translation much better. So that's how I built my company and started to gather a team and put together nice people to work with me. And then I discovered the sales perspective of translation. So that's how I started uh, my company back in the year 1999. And then a series of events dissolved one company, started another company, then merged with another company. And here we are with Latamway. The importance of translation, whether it's internal or external, in my opinion, is that it has been proven that it increases the engagement of your audience. So whether you're doing it for your employees or whether you're doing it for sales, for me, it has the same importance, right? And sometimes it's even a question of safety for many companies uh, working on internal communications. It's not about just, it's, a, it's an investment because you're going to avoid maybe having problems with your staff understanding certain instructions that they have to do in order to do their work right. So whatever it is, the decision that is behind it, I agree with Ray that it has to be something to be considered. And if you're an international company, then a globalization strategy should be in place for every single company out there. But it's not just about the language, so word-for-word word translation. It's more than the language, isn't it? Of course, of course. It's a, it's a cultural thing, and it depends on where you're going, right? Tra- translation is uh, just a way for you to get to the person that you're trying to reach, right? And have that person totally understand you. It's not only about the language, it's about the culture. It's In, in fact, there's a huge around the Squid Game. I'm sure you know about the biggest Netflix series there has been. And everybody's criticizing the translation, not because the translation is bad, but because they're missing out on many of the cultural aspects of it. But it doesn't really matter. It is still the biggest series out there because it is translated, right? So according to Common Sense Advisory is a, is a research company, and back in the year 2006, they, they released this study called Can't Read, Won't Buy, where 65% of the respondents said that they prefer to have content in their language, uh, even if it's in poor quality. So there you go. And the, the report is called Can't Read, Won't Buy. I used to work for Australia's special broadcasting services and we broadcast in 68 different languages and the the key was we speak your language. It was about, as you said, reaching people in their language but also with their culture. What was your thoughts on that, Ray? There are probably two different types of companies that that consider this. One is like, for example, global retail brands where, you know, you've got people on the sh- on the shop floor and they're not wired and maybe they don't speak English. So they may have a system in place for communicating with line level employees. Those would be in industrial settings, transport settings, retail settings, you know, sometimes even banks where the people just are not wired without access to email. And they may have a place and, you know, a process in place for translating, localizing, probably more like translating. 
Uh, and but I would still bet that even if that is the the case, they could probably improve it greatly. I think a lot of companies, even in this situation, they adapt this content, these instructions locally, and then they send it to the countries and say translate as you see fit. And I think there are a lot of risks there for getting it wrong. There are a lot of costs. There are a lot of misinterpretations. And as Cecilia was just saying, in a in a in a safety setting, maybe you want to be very careful with that. So that's one category, and I think there are opportunities for improving that and optimizing that, and maybe that. That's a, a bigger topic than we can get into today. But for, for services companies, companies that really are functioning in English all around the world, I, I, I think there's a, you know, they need to get out of this mindset of, of, of broadcasting. You know, we are the creators of the content and then they adapt it because, uh, you know, a, a translated campaign, translated content does do better. You know, where, where you measure it, you can see that there will be a slight uptick in the in the consumption. But I think very often there's a lot of culture behind the translation. So I'm American and our content tends to be, you know, happy, clappy, go team. This doesn't always do well in other cultures, you know, frankly. So you can do a word for word translation and people will be probably more inclined to read it. But it still doesn't really speak to them. It doesn't because of the cultural nuance and because of the tone. So, uh, you know, it pains me to say it. I'm a writer. And I got into this profession because I really like creating content. And I think most communicators are also. They, they really they love their content and they, they love shaping it and they love getting it out and they love seeing the results. But in, as much as it pains me to say, I think we need to get out of that mindset of broadcasting and more into enabling. What can I do as a communicator to help other people be the communicator? Because I can't, I can't be that communicator for the whole world. But the thing, let me add to that, the, the thing happens with translators. Translators love their work and they protect their word, their work. That's why it is a big, there's a big clash between the translation companies or the big uh, multilingual vendors and then the freelance translator. There's always a clash there because the translator believes that their work should be respected, should be paid as, you know, originally uh, created content. And that's one view. But then we have to understand that the world has also evolved and it all depends on the purpose or where that communication or where that content is going to be used. Of course, not all content is created equal and it's not created for the same purpose, right? So in, in the case of what are the things that we are translating, uh, many of the things that we are translating, for example, machine translation, I read yesterday that 99% of all the content that is being translated in the planet today is being translated using machine translation. 99% of the content. Wow. So why? Because the amount of content that is being created, there's not enough talent to actually translate that content in the time that we need it, right? and for the number of languages that we have. So they're saying that this is helping even low-resource languages and, and people with low-resource that speak a language that is not really common to actually have access to that language. So it's, you know, it depends on what is the, the purpose of, of the content and the translation and uh, this. Of course, not everything is fit for all, right? It depends on the strategy. Absolutely. And Ray, you mentioned about the mindset shifting from the mindset of broadcasting to a mindset of co-creation. What does what does co-creation look like? So when I say we need to get out of a mindset of broadcast and into co-creation, what I'm 
what I'm talking about is actually working with our local partners, people in country who uh, are going to help us get our comms out. Now, they may come in a few different categories. Some of them are going to come with real communications training, real communications experience. Uh, so we need to think about how, you know, what they need to produce, uh, to work with us. Maybe they need to be incentivized. But then there's going to be a whole lot of small countries who maybe it's uh, somebody who's the admin to the executive or, uh, you know, maybe it's a, an HR specialist or something. They have no comms training. They're very busy with their core job already. And what they're doing for you is very much of a favor. So in each market, this co-creation is going to look differently. With some people, they're going to be very creatively engaged in the process. And in other ones, they may need much more hand-holding. Co-creation program, uh, you know, in some countries, it's going to look much like what you're already doing. But in other ones, it might be more like, um, you know, they're really the creative and you're helping them out with I don't know, uh, translation budget or video subtitling services, or maybe you have some creative resources that they can't tap into, helping them out with uh, key messaging, and uh, but but really trusting them to to know their market and to deploy communications that are effective. And and since you you brought up machine translation, in my uh, experience and what from um, in interviewing people for the book, uh, I, I've learned that people may be more and more tolerant of machine translation. Uh, I talked with one Belgian comms director. She said years ago they introduced machine translation for a, a specific internal tool, and people howled. They hated it. And then a few years late, a few years passed, and they they introduced it again, and and people were much more accepting of it. But from what I understand, there should be you know it should be clearly labeled as machine translation, and people should have access to the original because sometimes in some languages machine translation doesn't work very well. But the third thing I would add to that is I, I think I would consider machine translation for things like informing people. Like how do you log on to this application? How do you create a, a, a username and so on? Maybe machine translation would be okay for that. But if, it, if the purpose of the communication is to persuade, here is where you probably want to be using more emotional elements, maybe some more storytelling. You're probably going to be relying more on cultural references. So these are the kind of areas when it comes to persuasion, you probably want human beings involved. And your thoughts, Cecilia? I have to agree. It's all about the purpose of uh, the communication. What is it that you're trying to achieve? In terms of going back to Ray's topic of internal communications at different corporations, I think that especially today with the um, scarcity of talent, maybe it's even a human resources approach to actually tailor your communications to, you know, address the needs of your employees by communicating in their language. Not only about, you know, just safety procedures or instructions or making sure that they can follow, but also to make them feel special and maybe retain talent. Uh, in terms of machine translation, everything the race says is correct. Even uh, corporations are not still, are not really adopting it or even language service companies are slow in the adoption except for a few you know exceptions where they set out to use machine translation to help with their productivity and be really good at it so there's the case uh, of um, this partnership between company a translation company and airbnb where together they built out this machine translation agent engine and they're translating million of words a day in order to improve their international customer experience. So it, it, you know, in this case, it works, right? 
because otherwise these people are not wouldn't even have that option or Facebook or Meta uh, are trying their multilingual uh, approaches to machine translation and they they are they envision a universal translator so that everybody can communicate in their own language everywhere without the need of even a professional translator so machine translation is here to stay even though I'm, I'm from the language services industry, we work with CAD tools, what we called computer-assisted tools to help with consistency during the translation process, to help with uh, creating terminology bases and stuff like that. But this technology hasn't really changed in the past 25 years, whereas machine translation has, and it has improved dramatically. But because it's not just a language service uh, industry thing, but it's a Google thing, a Facebook thing. You know, everybody wants to help develop machine translation for the benefit of reaching a wider audience. So it's, you know, first users were e-commerce, eBay, for example. Now everybody's doing it, Amazon, Alibaba, Everybody's using machine translation to reach a wider audience. And, and, and it has been proven that the numbers go up when they do provide access in their end user uh, native language. So what can I say? We, are, we as a language company, it's hard because we need to change the different roles of the translators. Not everybody loves it, but we have to learn to work together with this technology in order to have larger content, uh, large, larger content translated every day for even more languages. So, and, and it's a natural change. It's the evolution of, of language technology and it's amazing. And if, if you don't really support it or try to understand it, it's gonna be difficult to work in the near future. And I remember when we started using the CAD tools that I mentioned before, many translators were against those. And today there's no other way to work if you don't use uh, these CAD tools, right? So it's a question of time for everybody to adapt. And as long as it helps people be able to have the information that they need in the language that they need, let's say COVID, when COVID hit, uh, imagine all these countries where there are no translators or, you know, only a few people speak the language. So if we didn't have these uh, technologies, maybe we couldn't even provide information for them, right? So it's, it's a, it's, it depends on where and how it wants to be used. But I agree with Ray that there are certain, definitely certain fields that machine translation does not function and has been proven that it does not work right. So, yeah. Thanks, Cecilia. And so, Ray, in your book, one of the things you touch on is how to set up a communications department, whether I guess it's an internal communications department or a global external communications department. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you would structure it and the advice that you would give? 
Well, this is a really fun question because you get to devise your own team. Uh, there, are, the answer is I think it's going to depend a lot on what kind of company it is, how big it is, what industry it's in, um, and so on. And I guess it would all start with a kind of audit about what your global processes already look like. But what I would urge is for all departments, whether they've got the fanciest and shiniest of tools or whether they're still working in spreadsheets, but to really shift the mindset to one of content operations. And if, if you're unfamiliar with content operations, there's a lot of content on it right now. It seems to be a hot topic. It comes out of the technical writing field, as far as I understand it. Sorry, Ray, could you just give us a little uh, definition of it just for the uninitiated? What I understand content operations to be is, you know, it came from the technical writing world where they were producing manuals in dozens of languages, multiple releases, just, you know, they were, they were producing so much more translated content than any other industry. So they were constantly being asked to do more with less. So they, you know, they started to devise, well, what do we really need to, to make our content more, um, what would be a good way to define this? How can we apply manufacturing models to our creation of content? So we think about the smallest divisible components, the visuals, and, and make those to make those available to all markets and have them tagged with metadata so that people can find it and to you know to provide templates that are easy to work with and and but what are the smallest components of our content so that when someone in I don't know Korea goes to write about healthcare content you know or, or content related to the your company's service to the healthcare industry they've got access to messages that are on message on time already translated and and easy to to plug and play and already already easy to use that's something like what content operations is defined as and I think that we can apply those same models to our own content even if again if we're working from just spreadsheets so in terms of organizing teams around this I would think about the tiers of our markets, you know, so our largest markets where we already have communicators, I would I would see about getting those into our organization. None of these dotted lines and none of these kind of like, you know, helping us out as a favor, but let's make those organizational roles clear and then have meetings with them frequently about what do they actually need to produce content, to put them on equal footing as you, you know, so that they're creating local campaigns, local content that makes sense to people. Now, your smaller markets probably don't have that kind of resource. So then I would think about having a team centrally, a person or a team that's tasked with making content global ready. So that's actually feeding those smaller markets with assets in ways that they can actually use them. You know, because if you give somebody InDesign files and they don't have that application, you know, it doesn't really help anybody. So, you know, what, what are the finished pieces that they need to, to deploy in their market? Uh, and then with that team, this let's, I'm calling it the Global Ready Group or something like that, I think they should also be tasked with educating managers and directors back at headquarters about what global rollouts look, out, look like. A lot of these functional managers and function heads don't really know what it takes to get out of, let's say, a IT security training. You know, they think it's just a matter of translating X numbers of words. It should take this long. It should be, you know, we're sending the content on Wednesday. It should deploy by Friday. They do not have really realistic uh, understandings of what global global needs are. So I think that team should also be responsible for educating them. And I think that's one of the key things with communications is you never rely on a top-down approach where content is pushed downwards towards other people down the hierarchy. How would you inspire or do you have any ideas of how these local partners could be empowered to bring that knowledge and those 
observations and insights back up to the central office? I think key to that, I think it's a very good question, and key to that is understanding what incentives they have. A lot of times they are, you are working with somebody from marketing, some other you know HR department, and they just don't have the incentives to help you out. So to the extent that they're interested in the work, that's great, and they're probably engaged with it because on some level it's, it's fun or interesting to them, but you're at high risk there for losing access to that resource. If they just get you know really too busy and their boss is pressuring them in other ways, they're just not going to be able to be there to help you with the campaign. So I think it may very well be that it will be a favor, but you've got to really work that out both, you know, politically, organizationally, you know, to what extent can you rely on them to help you to get a campaign or a piece of content out? And I also think that if you can provide organizational clarity as to whether it's a dotted line reporting line or whether they're really part of your team, but really provide opportunities for development and mentoring and really show them what a long-term picture of being on your team looks like. And I think that, you know, this is part of looking at, you know, what their incentives are. And, you know, if we can't make them part of the team formally, I think the recognition opportunities and the development opportunities should be there so that we can attract them. And cultural awareness training, do you think that that helps or? The cultural awareness training seems to be most sorely needed at the headquarters. But then again, I don't think it's going to harm anybody <laughs> to, to, to be more aware of, you know, of, of, uh, you know, because some of these people in the regions, they may be responsible for, you know, communications across, you know, I don't know, 20 or 30 different countries. That means many different languages. So cultural awareness in those situations is also going to be helpful to them, because I think even those of us in the regions, we still have a strong tendency to to describe the world from our perspective. And Cecilia, you're in the enviable position of having insights into many different global companies and and seeing how they structure and build things. What have you seen to be most effective? Well, this is one of the good things about being part of an organization like Women in Localization, made up of almost 200 volunteers from all over the world and 27 chapters around the world. It's a huge challenge to communicate with all these women because the cultural aspect of it is the biggest challenge. And I've been in situations where I have to say, hey, let's get on a call right now because I can't really understand what you're saying, right? Via email. So communication is a huge challenge. And I agree with Ray that if you want to make people feel part of a team, then this should be addressed. And I I do agree that cultural awareness or training, some sort of training. When you're working with different cultures around the world and different countries, you have to know what doing business like, talking to people in that country is like. I mean, it's part of, you know, it's, you are going to have a better experience overall if you know what you're getting yourself into, right? Aside from the communication. In terms of how global companies work across different cultures and languages, What have you seen has worked well and what are your thoughts on the best way to structure that? In terms of different different corporations, the ones that are more serious, let's say, have a globalization strategy in place or a globalization person that leads that strategy in order to launch whatever it is that they're launching in the different countries. So... Not every company can go and do that without having a person that knows how to reach you know, the different cultures and have a strategy in place. That's why globalization is 
they're experts in the globalization field. And that applies to content as well. If companies thought about growth or international growth, and they, that was put at the beginning of their phase, like they were thinking forward, and they thought about internationalization and globalization, they would also have a strategy, not only, only for growth, but also for content. And whenever they create the content from scratch, they're thinking about content that is going to be easily translated or adapted for the different cultures, right? Ideally, if you had the opportunity to work with local resources, just like we do with translation for the different products, the tendency in the translation world is to use vendors in the countries where the product is going to be used or the service is going to be used so that you can give that local flavor to it, right? Because translation is usually an afterthought and it's never budgeted for correctly, then we end up trying to adapt beautiful messages to a local um, country, to our local audience with little money and little time, unfortunately. If we were given more time and more money for uh, the development of these ideas, then the message would be much more impactful. So I would do the same with content, for example, where you can have, I would structure maybe these internal communications within these corporations in the same way, where you have a vendor manager uh, reaching out to content writers across the world, whatever you're trying to place this product or message and uh, work with project managers, vendor managers, the same way outsources. I mean, everybody works remote these days, so it's more globalized than ever. You can have access to anyone, anywhere. And I remember this vendor management seminar that we went to uh, once where these vendor managers said that there are certain language combinations where it's impossible to find professional translators to work on the communications. So what they did was go to the local uh, schools or churches or, you know, communities. Usually when there's a, there's a, a language that is not really common, there's, they build these communities for them to be close. So they used to visit these communities and ask them and train them on how to interpret or how to translate certain things. And the motivation was that they would have communication in their own language if they helped them with the translation. So that goes back uh, to Ray's comment on how to, you know, motivate these people where, what is it in it for them besides the information? But it's the collaboration factor, the fact that they are involved in this process and that they help their community or have access to all this important information. Thank you. We're coming close to the end of our podcast today, but I was really, really curious to get your thoughts on what you think that all business communication professionals should know about localizing global communications. Ray, did you want to jump in first? Sure. My advice to communicators is that it's clear that you know how to tell a story, you know how to craft a campaign, and you know how to measure for results. But know that if you translate content, if you translate these campaigns, they're still loaded with lots of cultural baggage, lots of assumptions and norms that don't necessarily translate. They don't necessarily resonate with the people you're trying to reach. So 
As much as it pains me to say it, if we're looking to communicate globally, we need to think less about how we as business communicators, how we uh, craft things, and we need to think more about how we can enable others to communicate. And that there's a lot of detail there to talk about, but just thinking about enabling others, I think, puts us in a better position. So that real focus on the actual target audience, the actual end recipient of the message, the actual end person who you want to communicate with. And Cecilia? Again, that whatever time it takes them to come up with a perfect message, the same time and budget should be allowed for the message in the language that they want that same communication to be in. That whenever they create content, they should think about a globalization strategy. They should have that in mind in order to make it easier. As Ray said, the cultural baggage can does not necessarily have to be there if you have writers that are prepared to create content for an international audience. There's always a way to be more neutral. It's not the same, but if you are if you have a limitation of budget, let's say, and you have to create one campaign that adapts to a more international audience, there are tricks, there are ways to achieve that, right? So that translation is better or has a better result. It's not the ideal scenario. I agree with Ray that everybody should be working with local uh, content writers in the country where they are trying to reach their audience, but it's not always a possibility. And I'm, as a translator have to say that I translate for Latin America because it's impossible to translate for Argentina, for Chile, for Bolivia, for Peru. And sometimes it doesn't really make sense. To be honest, I could do a lot more money by saying, no, we need to translate into all these Spanish variants. Many, many times it doesn't make a lot of sense because it depends on the type of content we're talking about. And thinking a communications globalization strategy for your global audience will always enhance your brand and help you build trust. So I think that's something that everybody should bear in mind. Thank you so much, Cecilia. Thank you so much, Ray, for just such an insightful and such a knowledgeable discussion. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a true honor to be with the two of you here. Uh, Thank you. I feel that way as well. Thank you.